We've spent the last two weeks going into a series examining this season of Advent. We've seen how the ingredients of this season of Advent are perfectly displayed for us in the Word of God. The season of waiting, the season of anticipating what the Lord will do as He has promised The season is also filled with the news of his appearing. But of course we have to hasten. Hasten to address perhaps the most important ingredient of all. It is indeed what we have just sung about. How Christ was born for this. Christ was born to save. Indeed, as I think as we've seen already, as Titus is hearing these words from the Apostle Paul, he, I don't think necessarily he was often made to think about Christmas. It's not as if Christmas was in Paul's mind. However, these words, as we've seen, help us to understand the true and timeless meaning of the season, leading us now to explore this last ingredient called the saving The section prior to the section that we've been dealing with, the text in Titus chapter 2, sees Paul address a number of, we could call them practical details or practical matters within the church. Uh, Practical matters that Titus, the, the protege, the disciple of Paul, was to keep in mind as he was preaching to the believers and to the church of Crete. You'll notice as he begins, Titus chapter number 2, verse 1, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, and love, and in steadfastness. And on he goes. Down through verse 10, as he considers the church's livelihood, the church's speech, their conduct, their lifestyle, their character. Things which ought to be becoming of those who would be called the church of Christ, indeed, you could do. You could lay over top of this section in Titus two one through ten, Paul's words to the Galatians that we know as the fruits of the Spirit. And essentially, that's what he is encouraging Titus to have uh, this church be known for. Be known for these things. But I think it's, 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 it's interesting, but it's also very significant for our purposes, that Paul begins and ends that section in verses 1 and also in verse 10 by referencing the foundation where all of this comes from. Namely, the doctrine of God. You'll notice verse 1 again, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he goes on to explain what that is. And then notice verse 10 as he bookends the section with this phrase. So that everything, may, they, that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Is this phrase... This phrase, the doctrine of God, our Savior, that Paul then proceeds to explain in the passages that we have taken notice of in the past couple of weeks. He expands on what this means, what it means to preach and to teach the doctrine that God is man's Savior. This is, of course, nothing less than the good news that we would be familiar with. The good news of great joy that the angels announced to the shepherds. That the Savior indeed has come. He's arrived. The one you've been looking for. The one you've been waiting for. He has appeared. This is the blessed hope. That all of God's people had been longing for. Had been waiting for. He had finally come. You see far from 
from being simply quaint accounts of, of the story of Jesus' nativity, the, the story of Jesus' birth that perhaps we are very familiar with. Texts such as Luke chapter 2 or, or Matthew chapter 1, they are records of not only prophetic but historic fulfillment as all of these incredible elements of what God has promised long before are now coming to fruition. All of those stories, all of those stories that have been passed down from generation to generation, all the way since the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all of those things were now coming true. Exactly as all of the prophets had foretold. In a way, yes, that was perhaps surprising and very unexpected. After all, the Savior that Israel was looking for could be found in nowhere else but in a, in a manger. In the form of an infant. But the point that is so significant for us, but for anyone that has ever breathed, is the fact that the point of all of this finds its point in salvation Itself. That's the hope. That is the main thrust of all of these stories of Jesus' arrival. The story, you see, of Jesus' nativity, his birth, if you will, is actually also, we could call it, the doctrine of God our Savior. It's the story of how God became the Savior of all mankind. It's the story of how the Creator himself came to bring about his purposes to redeem and to repair his creation by becoming one of his own creatures himself. That which he made and spoke into existence in eternity past was going to be remade by he himself becoming a part of what he made. And he came for no other purpose than that, than to save This is why he appeared. Those verses again. Titus 3 verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God. Our savior appeared. He saved us. Or more to the point. In chapter number 2 verse 11. This wonderful phrase. For when the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. That term, I love that phrase, bringing salvation, as it implies that this, this, this very presence of God himself, it sets in motion this plan that, that he has established from before the foundation of the world for the actual hope and the actual salvation of all of God's people. And we see this right away within some of those early nativity stories. If you will, go back with me to um, chapter number one of Luke And watch how this theme of salvation plays such a significant role in these who were there at the first Christmas, if you will. Go with me to Luke chapter number 1 and look at verse 46. And notice what Mary prays. Mary, the mother of Jesus, notice what she says. Luke 146. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Why? Because the Savior was arriving into this world, into this life. Notice what Zechariah later prays. Look at Luke 1, look at verse 68. 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, Zechariah prays, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Jump with me to Luke chapter number 2. Look at verse 29. Here after Jesus is born, he's a couple months old and he is brought to the temple. And that man that we love so much, Simeon, he sees him and notice what he prays as he sees the Messiah. Lord, verse 29, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Each one of these individuals, knowing the scriptures perhaps very well, each of them understood and they confessed to believe that their salvation was being brought about in their very midst by none other than God himself. It is God who is doing this. God who is working all of this out. God who is unfolding his salvation right in front of their very eyes, beginning with this little baby who comes down as the son of God himself in the form and in the likeness of men. And this... This, in fact, is the point that I think distinguishes the Christian faith, Christianity itself, from all other religions. You know, other, other religions, other spiritual mythologies, if you will, other systems of belief and faith, they have their own stories about gods coming down and visiting humanity. But oftentimes, what you will find, whenever those gods of other systems of belief, whenever they do leave their heavenly homes and they come down to visit humans, you will find that it rarely ended very well for anyone involved. And in fact, the concept of divine intervention, if you will, was not always one that we could equate with good news. Oftentimes, that was a menacing thing. That was an ominous thing. That was a threatening thing if gods were to come and arrive on the scene. Loki, the god of Norse mythology, of course you might know, is known as the trickster god. Since he is often known, if you read some of the the myths surrounding him, he is often one who would deceive not only other gods, but other men. Resulting, of course, in lots of chaos and lots of conflict and lots of friction. The Greek god, the one that we would perhaps most know of, of Greek mythology, Zeus... The god of thunder and the king of Mount Olympus. He was very often known for coming down out of Olympus. out of Olympus, And he was known for his frequent dalliances and love affairs with human women. Escapades, of course, which often kept him at the center of a lot of drama and strife and scandal. And interestingly enough, one of these myths surrounding Zeus actually is the source of great conflict for the Apostle Paul. If you didn't know, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 14. This is somewhat of a sidebar, but I want you to see. I want you to see what happens when we read of other stories of gods coming down. These ones who are false, these myths who have no bearing in reality, perhaps. But notice Acts chapter 14, an interesting account, a story in which this myth of Zeus taking on human form and interacting with humans doesn't end very well. If you know anything about the book of Acts, you know that Acts chapter 14 is in the midst of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. They're actually in some of the regions that we've been preaching about in southern Galatia. They're preaching to churches, they're ministering the gospel to many far and wide, preaching the good news of justification in Jesus 
And when they arrive in one city, the city known as Lystra, they notice a man who was crippled from birth. He's never had use of his legs. And Paul notices this man, he spots him, and he locks eyes with this man, and he speaks a word, and that man is healed on the spot. Look at Acts chapter number 14, look at verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Notice verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the Lyconian tongue, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. A stir starts in that city all throughout Lystra as rumors are quickly now started to spread that, that, that of what had occurred, that this man who had never walked, who had never had use of his legs, is now springing up, he's jumping, he's walking, he's, he's running around. And it leads this rumor to go around, to lead all these people to get, all them all, get themselves all stir-crazy that the gods had come down in the likeness of men, which I think is a very interesting phrase. And in fact, what we find is that they believe that Paul and Barnabas are none other than the incarnations of Zeus and Hermes. Notice verse 11 again. They lifted up their voices saying in Lyconium, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So obviously in this town of Lystra there was a myth going around. In fact, that you can find this in Roman and in Greek mythology. There was a, a myth about this time when Zeus and Hermes once descended out of Mount Olympus. And they disguised themselves as humans. And they went down and they visited the people of the nearby region of Phrygia. And when they did, they roamed the streets, Zeus and Hermes, in the form of men. No one welcomed them. No citizen ever welcomed them inside. They never, uh, they never showed hospitality to them. No one showed them any ounce of kindness or niceties. No one that is except for this elderly couple named Philemon and Baucus. Now Philemon and Baucus were a very poor and pitiful couple. They had very little means, very little to their names. And yet as the myth goes, they selflessly and very generously welcomed Zeus and Hermes, even though they didn't know that it was them. They welcomed them into their home and showed them as much hospitality as they could. As best they could, they honored them. And suddenly when they find out that their dinner guests are none other than Zeus and Hermes of very much mythological fame, Philemon and Baucus are rewarded. Zeus and Hermes end up rewarding this elderly couple for their piety and for their hospitality and for their kindness. And you know what their reward was? Well, the reward was proceeding to punish all of the nearby neighbors in Phrygia with a townwide flood. Everyone else, I guess, was... On the naughty list. <laughs> and this is the myth that serves as the backdrop to what occurs with Paul and Barnabas here in Acts chapter 14. This myth of Zeus and Hermes coming down, interacting with people, and it ends up not being very well for everyone else who wasn't on the nice list. So instead, why are all these people going in such an uproar? Probably because they want to make sure that they're on that nice list. <laughs> the people of Lystra were thrilled. 
that this myth, by all accounts, was coming true in their very midst. This is Zeus and Hermes. Come in the likeness of men. And in fact, even the priest of Zeus himself, who perhaps had the first church of Zeus there in Lystra, he even starts a parade throughout all of the city to celebrate the arrival of these gods. But we don't have to imagine very much how Paul reacted to this scene. He was horrified. Horrified that he and the gospel of Christ would ever be associated with these myths. And his reaction tells us all we need to know. Look at verse 13. And as the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice for the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. That you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You see, immediately Paul cuts through the myths and tells them about a factual story. About not a mythical tale, but a real story, a real account, a really, a very real piece of good news. Which is the fact that there is a God who is alive, who yes indeed once visited this place, but he is alive for them. You see, like the people of Lystra, oftentimes these accounts of other gods appearing and visiting and coming down. They often result in in deception and havoc and ruin. These fables often leave nothing but madness and mayhem in their wake, leaving a mess. There's nothing truly redeeming in a story about Zeus and Hermes visiting the people of Phrygia, nor in what it happened nor in what it occasioned here in Lystra. But I think what this does, and the reason why I wanted to point this story out, is because it serves to highlight what makes the Christian gospel so incredibly unique. Because far from a sense of fear and and foreboding and unrest and unease and anxiety that accompanies some of those other myths, the fact that Jehovah has taken on flesh and visited his people brings them what? Salvation. Titus 2.11, For when the grace of God appeared, what occurs? He brings salvation for all people. Not just for the hospitable ones. Not just for the nice ones. His arrival... The arrival of the Son of God in the flesh is the inauguration, as the angels say, of peace on the earth and goodwill toward men. You see, rather than than scattering like cockroaches when the light is turned on, when the announcement of the incarnation of the Son of God pierces that dark night and dark world of Bethlehem, that's what beckons All of those who sit in darkness to come into the light. This indeed is what Zechariah prays. If you go back with me to Luke chapter 1. Remember his prayer. Luke 1, look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, this is what Advent is all about. 
With this season of anticipation and joy. And yes, also confronting the fact that we are weak and helpless in and of ourselves. And invites us to remember that that baby born to Mary and to Joseph. And who was laid in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. is none other than the, than the incarnation of God himself. The Savior, Christ, the Lord. He descended out of heaven. For the express purpose of what? Titus 2.11. Bringing salvation to all people. That was his mission. It wasn't just part of why he had come. It wasn't just ancillary to why he had appeared in the first place. This is the impetus. This is the focus. This is why he had arrived. Which harkens back. Go with me to Matthew chapter 1. In that scene where Joseph is greeted by the angel And is told all about what to expect of this baby that had suddenly appeared in his soon-to-be wife's womb. If you remember, Joseph here is greeted in a dream by an angel. Notice what happens. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, they were engaged to be married. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You can imagine the unrest and the scandal. This one that he was betrothed to Mary, engaged to me, Mary suddenly is pregnant. Not only does it look bad on him, it looks bad on her. And he is trying to understand how this happened. Because Mary comes up to him and says, I'm pregnant with someone from the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Right, Mary. And yet, as he deals with all of those conversations, the back-talking, the gossiping and the rumors, you can imagine the unrest in Joseph. And this is precisely when he is visited by an angel in a dream. Notice verse number 20, but as he considered these things. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This scene is so powerful and profound for what it tells us about why Jesus appeared in the first place. Why the Son of God came down. As Joseph is here is made to understand that the child growing in his fiancée's womb, in her belly, was not just a man. It was the God-man. The Son of God himself. The baby that he would soon welcome into the world was none other than Christ the Lord. Coming down, being born in the likeness of men. That little infant was none other than Emmanuel. God with us. It was God showing up to be with his people. And indeed you could even say that that little embryo. In Mary's belly was the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And this is the announcement. 
that Joseph receives is an announcement that the angels make. It's an announcement that signals how God himself would, would invade and sort of, we could say, intervene in this world of sin and death. And he himself would bring about an end to sin and put death to death. That's what all of this is leading up to. This is all what we are anticipating and expecting throughout all of these wonderful stories of the nativity of Jesus. And in fact... This is exactly precisely what his name means. The name Jesus is a foreshadowing and indeed an anticipation of all that he would one day accomplish. You know, as Americans, we, we don't put the same value or level of meaning perhaps on our names as other cultures do. Especially those in Eastern traditions. For Jews especially, your name wasn't just something people called out to get your attention. It would be pretty boring if all we had to do and say was, hey, you, so we came up with names. But more than that, these names mean something. (laughs) They carry weight, they carry value, they carry your personhood. You see, rather than just being a term to get your attention, names signify who you are and what you are. In my case, actually, I'm kind of glad this isn't really the case for me. The name Bradley... If you know, it comes from an only English term meaning broad meadow or broad clearing, which isn't exactly the most inspiring name. But you can bet I am immensely grateful for the fact that when we read about the names of God, they mean something. They illustrate exactly who God is. They, exili- they illustrate and demonstrate his nature and his character and who he is and precisely who he is for us. You can rattle off uh, countless names of God that appear in scriptures. He is who? He is El Shaddai, God Almighty. He's Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh provides. He is Jehovah Rapha, Yahweh heals. But here he is called Jehovah Yisha. Yahweh saves. This is the last name that was given. This last name was the name that was given to the Son of God. When he comes down to be born of the Virgin Mary. It's the name Jesus. Which essentially is just the Greek version of that Hebrew name. Jehovah Yisha. Yahweh saves. This is who Mary was carrying. For those nine months. The Savior. The one who is indeed the very sum and substance of God's saving initiative. His plan that he has been unfolding since the beginning of time. This plan that is leading up to this culminating moment. Where yes, not only has this baby arrived. Not only has the son of God arrived. But the culminating apex of all of that is that this is the way in which Yahweh saves. By coming Into this world and being born on a cold night in Bethlehem. It is the very one. That that little infant was the very one who is coming to bring about all of God's promises of salvation and redemption and hope and peace. For all of those who are destitute of all of those things. And perhaps you're nodding in agreement and you're smiling. (laughs) And indeed you should. It's exciting and thrilling to hear these things told and retold to us. But I would hasten to say that we should not let our familiarity with Christmas and the story of Jesus' nativity lead us to just gloss over these details. To forget the true meaning and significance of this very event. 
And that, I think, is why these words to Titus are so powerful. Again, I draw your attention to Titus chapter 2 and these words that are so supremely and immensely helpful. Or excuse me, Titus 3 verse 4. Again, Paul saying, But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, we are made to see that when the Savior comes, when God our Savior appears... The salvation that he comes to bring about has nothing to do with us. It's not about our works, the works that we do, no matter how good they appear, no matter how virtuous we might have done them in. It's not about the goodness that's seen in us or the hospitality that's shown by us. Unlike the story of Philemon and Balchus, God is not moved by some intrinsic quality or virtue in us. That's not what propels him to come and take this low estate of becoming a human God does not take on flesh and come down to where we are because of some inherent goodness that we have demonstrated. Because we've made it on that proverbial niceness. Actually, as Paul says here, this is all. This appearing, this saving, this working of God in this world, in his own way, is all according to his own mercy. And in him relenting from actually giving us what we deserve. And instead he comes to give the very opposite. It's called grace. He comes to demonstrate that grace. And that compassionate concern for us. That's what the son of God comes to embody. You can think about that very fact. That he comes to be the embodiment of God's pity for us. We who are the last and the least and the lost and the little and the dead. That's what he comes Comes to save and to redeem. He comes to showcase all of that. He comes to showcase the very depths of the heart of God. That is filled with love and with grace and of pardon and of peace. Even towards those who don't deserve it. To those who have been rejected. And have rejected him. To those who have turned away. He comes to show up all of this. He comes to show up and bring all of this. For those who are the worst. Those who are wretched. That's what this good news of salvation is. It is salvation from sin and deliverance. It's given as a gift. It's given as a gift that Christ comes to give. And that gift we learn. Is Christ himself. Titus 2. Look at verse 14. Notice this phrase. Who gave himself for us to redeem us. How was this salvation brought about? How are we delivered? How does this rescue mission of God come about? How are we justified? How are we accepted? How are we made right? Only by the Son of God coming down and coming in the flesh. And only by, the, by God himself appearing where we are. By, by God himself appearing and then giving himself to die in our place. 
It's that theme of that hymn that we sung. He was born for this. He was born to save. This is all throughout scripture. Galatians 1, 4. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. The verse that perhaps we first memorize when we come to Sunday school classes. John 3, 16. God so loved the world. That what? That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or Jesus himself in Mark chapter 10 verse 45. He declares exactly why he has come. As he says the son of man came not to be served but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. The gift of Christmas, if you will, is Christ himself. He came to give himself for us, to redeem us from all of our sin and ungodliness and wickedness, from all of our unhospitality, from all of our unkindness, from all of our wrath and hatred and violence and vitriol and rebellion. He came to call us out of all of that by giving us the gift of himself. You see, this bringing of salvation into this world that is wrecked and ruined by sin, it necessarily involves the giving of himself. It is God surrendering. And this is what it means That the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all. He surrenders his own life in order that others might find theirs. And this is what Advent is supposed to bring to mind. This is what makes Christmas Christmas. This whole season is, is we could say, a gift for the church. To be reminded of the gift that salvation brings. And this salvation comes about precisely because Jesus puts the needs of others and indeed of the whole world before himself. He saw the predicament that we were in. The hopeless and pitiful plight of man. That's what he saw. And he considered it his own. And he took it on himself. And as the prophet Isaiah says. He, he then became acquainted with our grief. And he bore all of our sorrows. And he felt all of our affliction. And he was crushed with all. And because of all of our iniquities. The savior becomes sin. All so that sorry and wretched sinners like you and me could be saved and rescued and delivered. Yes, be made right with God, given the very righteousness and holiness of God himself. But that also, as Paul continues to explain, that all of this would be uh, coming about to make a new and living, uh, a new creation. This is what Jesus has come to deliver. This is the gift that he comes extending to one and to all. You see, rather than just saying, I care about you. God arrives in flesh and blood to show the world how deeply that care goes. His concern for you, his care for you is so great that he will stop at nothing in order to rescue you and redeem you. Even if it means going to the cross for you. And indeed that's what he's done. That's what he has accomplished. This is what Christmas is all about. It's about salvation. And those who are desperate for it. And the God who arrives to make it all possible. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all, for all who would have no other hope of it otherwise, for all who could never get out of their own way, for all who were lost and condemned to an eternity of suffering and fire. This is exactly what Jesus has come to accomplish. He has come to accomplish salvation for those, for those who were hopeless without him. So all of the lights and the tinsel and the garland and the presents... All of them pale in comparison to the unspeakable gift which is none other than Christ himself. Christ the Lord, born for you, crucified for you, and resurrected for you. This Christmas and all those ahead, we should not only think about that cradle in Bethlehem. Because that's not only what Christmas is about, it's... It's about a cross outside Jerusalem where salvation was won. Where in like manner he was put in the lowest of low estates. Being put to death like a common criminal. The very savior of the world. Pegged to a cross. A place that is so unseemly and unsightly. Much like how he entered into the world. He dies in a way that he did not deserve, but he did so so that you might get a gift that you don't deserve. He came in grace as the embodiment of all of God's love and favor and mercy for you. So that you, my friends, might be made right with the Father. This Christmas, let us celebrate the grace of God that has appeared and has saved us once for all. Let us pray.